You're listening to the sermon series on the letter to the Philippians at Sojourn Church, J-Town. In this letter, the Apostle Paul calls believers to live on the earth now as citizens of heaven. This means that Christians should find their identity not in this world, but in the world to come, centered on Jesus Christ. So my name is Lyle, like I said, one of the pastors here, and we've been working through the book of Philippians, we'll be working through this book until uh, the end of July, and so I don't, I don't know how it's been for you, but for me it's been pretty convicting and challenging, and um, been at the same time really kind of joyful, jumping in this book and staying in it. And so what I want to do uh, this morning is I, I, I want to speak on, uh, just briefly, on a, a virtue that's obviously in this text, and hopefully you saw that in verses three through four, uh, the virtue is humility. And I, and I, you know, offer as a father and to those that are dads here and those who are watching online, uh, a huge happy Father's Day. Man, I, I pray you do have a blessed day and that uh, you feel God's uh, fatherly care and love and pleasure in you. Um, but I do want to, you know, offer to you that uh, this virtue of humility, if we, under the Lordship of Jesus, in and through his power by his spirit, would continue to cultivate this virtue in our life. Uh, not only is it life-giving for you personally, but it is a life-giving virtue for your family and your children. Um, and we'll see more and why this is such an important aspect, even in uh, the passage here with Paul. And so if you were with us uh, last week, and so this is what I want to do, I just want to kind of walk through that passage again and land on this issue of humility and and it's got two sort of takeaways for us. That's all I got today. Um, and hopefully this will be enough for us to think on the rest of the day as well as uh, this week. So if you've been journeying with us, um, so Paul begins chapter one, chapter two, verse one, with this little connecting word uh, that we just read in our translation. That connecting word is then, so then. Uh, some translations have therefore, and any, you, know, you know this, but just a good reminder, anytime there's a therefore, you got to figure out why it's Therefore, all right, so are you with me? Thanks for a little nodding. I'm still thinking we're going to do some sl- something. We're doing something with this or signs to know you're with me, all right? Um, and so obviously what he's connecting to is the, the verses, the three verses at the end of that chapter, specifically uh, verse 27, right? So that's, you know, I laid before you last week. That's the theme of the book. This is what Paul is after, you know, as citizens of heaven, this is who you are if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You're not earning this. It's a, it's a change in status. As citizens of heaven, live your lives worthy of the gospel. And we talked about the gospel being both content and story. There's a story that we live into. There's, there's a way that we embody the gospel. There's a way that we live out. Jesus is Lord. And so now Paul is kind of putting flesh on that. And that's what he's doing here, starting in verse one. He's kind of beginning to show us, all right, what does this look like? How do we live our lives worthy of the gospel? How do we move this mission forward that Paul is really about here? He's wanting to, the people in Philippi to embody this, live as Jesus is Lord. And so as we see here, and starting off in verse one, it may feel like as you read these um, sort of, you know, conditional clauses that um, Paul's speaking of doubt here. That, that maybe the Christians in Philippi have not experienced these things, you know, because if kind of uh, carries the connotation of like doubt, you know, well, if you show up, right? When you say that, it's like, I'm not even sure if you're going to show up. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. That, but that's not what Paul is after here. So when he, when he uses these clauses here in verse one, when he says, if then, 
there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation, or another word, way you can translate that word, any comfort of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. It's not uh, Paul saying, hey, I, I'm wondering if you're experiencing this. No, Paul's actually saying, I know that these statements are true. And if I'm inviting you to reflect upon these statements and think about your own experience, and you will see that this is true of your own experience. So even a, another way you can say this is that you are or have experienced encouragement in Christ. You are, you have experienced comfort of love. You are, you have experienced fellowship, intimacy with the Spirit of God. You are, you have experienced affection and mercy. These are, these are statements that are true for them. And Paul is inviting them to reflect and say, wow, this, this is true of my experience. This is what I've experienced in my relationship with Christ. I have experienced encouragement of being in Jesus. I, I have experienced comfort of his love. I, I have experienced this, this oneness and this fellowship and this intimacy with the Spirit of God. I have experienced affection and mercy. This is what one commentator says about this in reference to kind of better understanding this verse 1. The clauses are deliberately compressed and vague, all right, since the appeal is primarily emotional. That is, verse 1 is not intended to function as a, as a set of four rational theological arguments, but here's what they're intended to function as. They're intended to function as a, an impassioned pleading. And so then the, the question you ask and then is, what is Paul pleading for? What's his impassioned pleading? Pleading. Well, it's in verse 2. This is the main verb in this long run-on sentence that goes on from verses 1 through 4. And the main verb is this, verse 2, first part of it, make my joy complete. So where's, what's his pleading? What's his emotional pleading for them as they examine these experiences that are true for them? Make my joy complete. And notice he doesn't say, give me joy. As we know from... This letter so far, even looking at chapter one here, we know joy is a theme. Number one, it's used 16 times. That little word's used 16 times throughout the book of Philippians. And even in chapter one, we're, we're seeing that, that little word used over and over. And so, you know, it's a, it's a word picture, all right? So just imagine this is kind of joy for Paul, right? He's not saying, hey, give me joy. No, he's already got some joy, right? We saw that in, I mean, you, I don't have this on the screen. If you have your own Bible, you can see this. And in verse four, he says, always praying with what? What's the word there? Joy. And so just like taking a big, mm, mm, big swig of joy here. I said, man, yes, with joy, I'm praying for you. And he keeps going on and we'll, we'll kind of fill this up a little bit. He keeps going on in verse 18 and, and uses it a couple times in verse 18. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed and this I rejoice. It's, a, it's the verb form of that noun, joy. And so in that, he's rejoicing and man, mm, mm. So refreshing. Yes, man, it's a little lukewarm, but that's okay. It's still refreshing. He goes on in the second half of verse 18 and repeats it again. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. And so, so Paul is like, you don't, I'm not asking you to give me joy because mm, I've already, mm. 
got some joy here, man. I am a joyful person. But here's what he's asking them to do when he says, make my joy complete. He's saying, look, I want you to overflow me with joy. That's what I'm wanting. That's the word picture that he's given to us. Is that I don't want you to give me joy. I've already got joy. But I want you to make my joy mm, mm, complete, over, overflow my joy. So, and as we got a lot of wetness down here, it's okay, it's got a towel, so it's all good. And I'll get a little, little rag here that's underneath here so I can still drink from this water, all right? But here's the, the cup of joy, amen? Uh, so the question you got to ask yourself then, what is it that he's wanting uh, the Christians in Philippi and us, like, how does he want, uh, what does he want them to do to make his joy, like, overflow? Well, look what he says here in the second half. Verse 2, this is how you make my joy complete or overflow me with joy, by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So the thing you got to do with these four clauses, because if you try to separate each one and try to figure out exactly what Paul is after, you might miss the point. The point is this, is he's using these four clauses back to back to back in order to kind of have a persuasive effect. And so the idea behind these, if you take, take a step back and look at the whole, what he's after is unity and, and oneness. Like make my joy complete, overflow me with joy by you being one. He's not, even though mind is used a lot here because it's kind of booked in with think the same way intent on one purpose or you know, some of you may have a translation of one mind. He's not asking us all to have the same opinions about everything, that all of us agree across the board on all these different issues that's going on in our life. We're not a cult, right? Amen? So we're, we're a church. There's a, there's, there's a lot of freedom here. But what, what Paul is after by, by using this idea of thinking the same way or intent on one purpose, the language I think we would use would be more like, hey, let us all be on the same page. Let's all kind of be united around, you know, one specific purpose, one intent here. And so then you ask, well, what is the purpose? What's the intent? Well, it's verse 27. As citizens of heaven, we're to live our lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is the mission that unites us. We as a body of Christ, not just an individual endeavor, it's a community endeavor. That we're to be a people that embody to this community what it looks like when Jesus is in charge. That's what he's wanting. He wants this message not to just stay here, but he wants this message to get out. And so, so for that message to get out, in part, there has to be a unity, a, a oneness. Yes, there's going to be a ton of diversity within the context of, of, of the community of Jesus Christ. A lot of different backgrounds and classes and colors and and cultures that we're all trying to come together and be one body. And what unites us as one body is not that we all have the same opinions about every issue that goes on in our culture, but no, we're one in purpose. We all want to be living our lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, like I said last week, the first lens that all of us put on is that I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And that's first and foremost how I view everything else in this culture. You know, all illustrations break down in some capacity, but the one I came up with, and actually got this from uh, Ty in our elders meeting, we were kind of talking a little bit about this passage. Um, you know, he came up with this. And said, yeah, that's kind of what he's after. And so 
Um, so just think about if you're, if you're going on vacation, all right? And, you know, some of us are doing that to some of us, some of us are not. And so if you've got a large family or whatever, some of my desires whenever we go like to Florida or whatever beach we go to, like we, we have a desire to get there as quickly as possible. You know what I'm saying? You know, we, we do. We want to we get there. We want to get to our destination. So just kind of play with this illustration. So if that's, if that's your purpose and, and the whole family is uniting under that purpose, like we have a, a desire to get to the destination spot as quickly as possible. That's what's uniting us as a family. And at the same time, a ton of diversity in the family. Amen? You got a man and woman, husband and wife, and you got kids who came out of that same man and woman, but they are all really, really different. Can I not get an amen? It's kind of shocking sometimes. It's like, how did you guys come out of our bodies and you're so different? It's like crazy. But so, got, but here's our purpose. We want to get to the destination as quickly as possible. So when it comes to lunch, you have a lot of opinions, right? Everybody likes something different. Oh, yeah, I love McDonald's. Oh, I don't like McDonald's. McDonald's is all trash. It makes me have diarrhea. Let's go to Taco Bell. I don't like Taco Bell. You know, gosh, I, I like something that's better. I'm just making up stuff right now. It's not my kids complain about. Well, maybe they have sometimes, but, you know, I want Subway or whatever. And so, so as a parent, I mean, you can, you can appease all these preferences, right? Which, you know, honestly, there have been times when I have. <laughs> Man, it's like, this is the way to keep my sanity. Like, we're going to go to McDonald's. We'll backtrack to Wendy's. We'll go down two more exits and go to Chick-fil-A. You know what I'm saying? Like, we'll go wherever sometimes. And what happens, though, if we do all this appeasement is we're, we're sacrificing our mission. Like, we're not going to get there as fast as we would want to. So what do you want to see? I mean, as a dad, I mean, you can throw down your authority card, you know, raise your voice. I'm the dad. Dad coming, we're going to Hardee's. That's where, you know what I'm saying? Like, suck it up. You can just suck down Coke or whatever. Like, you can, you can, you can throw that down. And unfortunately, I've probably used that quite a bit in our family trips. But what you would long to see, what you would desire to see, is that within the context of your, your family, a sibling would say, you know what? I don't love McDonald's, but I'm good with going. I can find something there. You know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm with Davin. We can do McDonald's. I can, you know, chicken nuggets are not bad there. They're, they're okay. They're a little chewy, but they're okay, right? I mean, that's what you, your heart wants to see. And when that happens, why are they doing it? Because it, we're trying to get to our destination as fast as possible. That's the mission. And I'm willing, I'm willing, look, listen, to humble myself and say no to my preferences because this is kind of where we're headed. That's why Paul dives in and talks about humility in verses three through four. So if I follow his train of thought, You've got encouragement of being in Christ. You know you do. You've experienced that. You have, and I'm going by memory here, so if I butchered, give me some grace. You have intimacy, right, with the Spirit. You have comfort from His love. You have mercy and empathy. You've, like, these are things that you've experienced. Hey, guys, look, make my joy overflow. Make my joy overflow. How, Paul? By you guys being united and one. You're on the same page you're, you're, you're about this mission of God that God's given to you. Well, how in the world are we going to be able to do that 
when we're all from diverse backgrounds. Verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or some translations say vain conceit. Selfish ambition carries this idea of like greedy attempt to gain the upper hand unjustly. Like it's the desire to get ahead to be better than. And it's so hard for us to celebrate the wins of other people. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty bragging. Instead, look what he says, but in humility, there's the virtue. In humility, consider others as more important than yourself. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. So Paul's not saying, hey, we need to look at everybody and say, hey, you're better than me. You know, you're so much better than me. You know, that, that's self-deprecation and that's not humility. That's false humility. That's not what Paul's after. But he's after um, a, a change in our kind of like value systems here and our change in our own heart to where we can look at others and say, I want to value your needs above mine. Not to the neglect of my own needs, not to the neglect of my own interests. That's not what Paul's after here. But there's, there's, a, there's a way of living to where I'm going to value your interest above my own. I'm going to value your needs above my own. In fact, sometimes I'm going to value your needs to the expense of my own. I'm going to value your interests at the sacrifice of my own interests. I know that's a stupid, silly illustration, but it, that's what I'm trying to get at with the van, you know? I mean, it's, it's such a trite example, and there's so much bigger issues that are going on in our culture and our society even right now that, wow, what if, what if we as followers of Jesus Christ who have the Spirit of God dwelling in us that empowers us to live into this actually began to do this? That's why I keep reading it. The New Living Translation translates it like this. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. I mean, those two verses are, are very powerful verses. They really are. And, and I know there's a ton of verses in the Bible, right? I, well, I haven't counted yet, but there's a ton of books, right? So, but... If someone would say, hey, if I had to have two verses that would kind of set the way of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ, these would be the two. And that's why Paul, which we'll look at next week, gives us the poem, this hymn about who Jesus is. Like he's the perfect example of verses three and four that we are also to embody. So follow Paul, man. He's not saying that the, the obstacle to unity is not 
the presence of legitimate differences of opinion. That's not the obstacle to unity. The obstacle to unity is selfishness, self-centeredness, and ultimately it's pride. I love how John Dixon in his book uh, called Humilitas, and if you've never read that book, I encourage you to get it. It's a good read about humility. And he reminds us in that book that one of the aspects of humility is it's, it's, it's social, it's relational. Like this is not a virtue that you do in your privacy of your own home by yourself, right? It's like anyone can convince themselves they're humble when they're all by themselves. I'm a really humble person, man. I Look how humble I am. But this is what he says here. It's such a great little definition. Humility is about redirecting our powers, whether physical, intellectual, financial, or structural, for the sake of others. Humility is more about how I treat others than how I think about myself. So hear what Paul is saying. Like if humility is not a virtue that is not only shared in this community, but is practiced and cultivated in this community, then unity and oneness will not happen. Divisions and factions and the vice of pride will grow It'll be what's cultivated here because where there is strife, usually, usually, not always, but usually, there's pride. And when this happens, the message of this good news about how all of humanity can have peace with God and peace with one another is not only hindered, it is hurt. And so Paul is calling the followers in Philippi and us also to become people who are humble. To humble ourselves before one another. To think and value someone else's needs above my own. To think and value someone's interest above my own. It's not a one-time thing It's a lifelong journey of cultivating this virtue of humility. So, Lyle, if this is what Paul is after, which I think he is here in verses three through four, then then how is this cultivated in me? What are some next steps that I can work through over the course of this week? I just got two. That's it. There's probably a bunch more. But I'll give you two, and they each start with A. So it'll help us remember, amen? The first one is this, is you have to admit you're proud. You have to admit that you are a proud person. The vice of pride is easy to smell on someone else. It's kind of like B.O., It's hard to smell on yourself, but man, you can smell it from a mile away on someone. Amen? Can I get an amen? Like just a wave of the hand, right? Yeah, that's pride. It's really deceptive. And so the posture, like, look, this is where um, 
Like I, I say this all the time because I believe it, man. The gospel frees us, right? To where we can, we can have these kind of like conversations, not only in, in relationship with Jesus and say, God, please show me where pride is in my life. Not do I, am I prideful? No, I am prideful. God, I am blind to my own blindness, so help me. And then you don't just do that in the privacy of just your relationship with him. God uses other people to help you see it, right? He empowers us to go in the context of like this and say, look, I don't need anyone to prove that I'm prideful. I'm there. I, I need you to help me see it. C.S. Lewis says this when he was giving advice on how to pursue the virtue of humility. He said this, and it is sometimes really hard to drink water out of a very high cup of water. So this is what he says. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. And that first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggest step too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you're not conceited, it means you're very conceited. So the first step to cultivating humility in your life is to admit and own that you're not humble, which is the first step toward the gospel, isn't it? Like you'll never draw close to God unless you first recognize that you're not humble and that you're prideful. Like you've got to come to God like this. You've got to come to God and say, hey, I'm blowing it. I've sinned. I, I, I need the grace of God in my life. The only thing that will destroy pride is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is. It's the only thing, the gospel, because it reminds us that it took Jesus dying for me in order to save me from myself. And for me to own that message requires me to humble myself. And as long as I'm unwilling to admit that I'm prideful, look, look, guys, look, it keeps you distant from God. And as a result, it'll keep you distant from one another. First step. Own that you're a prideful person. And know that in owning that, you're not only in the road to greater intimacy with God through Jesus Christ, you're also on the road to humility. And secondly, and I'll end here, so admit you're proud and then act humbly. I know that may sound really simplistic and, and some of you may uh, even have a little disagreement. That's okay. Your disagreement's good here. We can do disagreement, right? Because we're after one mission, so we can disagree with one another. But here's what I'm trying to say. I think there are times when we need to force ourselves to act humbly. And I know that seems a little inauthentic. I know it may seem like, ah, oh, I don't know like that because I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want to be someone that's genuine. Well, look, can we just be somewhat honest? You're not always genuine, we don't all have 100% pure motives, right? Nor, nor do we wait till we have pure motives before we act. Are you following me? Sometimes you act in love with your spouse or a close friend even when you don't feel like it. Sometimes it, you might be in a season with your marriage that that's what you do for a few years with the hope 
that your feelings will catch up with your actions. That's, that's the desire. You're, you're not satisfied with the gap. You're wanting the gap to close. And I would say that, that sometimes what God wants us to do is you act and then you pray and say, God, close the gap. And in time, it does. In the same way with humility, act humble. In some situations, you're going to have to force yourself to act humbly because you want Lord willing, by his grace, to be the virtue that, it, that you embody. And so we don't wait for that virtue to be embodied in us before we act humbly. Sometimes in some situations we act humbly. And so what could that look like? I mean, I encourage you to do that work, but here's a couple of thoughts. It could look like this, that you're quick to say I'm wrong. Even when you feel like I'm right. You know what I'm saying? And there are maybe moments where you might want to circle back around, right? And, and show where elements that maybe you were right. But I'm just saying sometimes we have a tendency not even to admit there might be some wrong in how I acted and what I said and how I said it. That what's keeping you from humbling yourself before your children sometimes and saying, you know what? Dad was wrong. What he said there was wrong and sinful. And I'm really sorry. Like if you want to be life-giving to your kids, not only when they're eight, but when they're 50, it's to own when you're wrong. And I would say that's acting humbly. That's the posture and the action of being humble. Another one would be um, and I know this is kind of hard even for me to do this. Um, so that's why I've kind of changed it. But you invite criticism, invite feedback. Or another way of saying that, and this is kind of what I do more. I don't know, maybe it's just showing I need to, I got a lot more room to grow. But I, I like the language of like, how do you experience me? Because I think how do you experience me is a, is a question of humility because you're thinking about their needs before your own needs. And when you ask somebody how you're experiencing me, you're thinking about it their need, like what, what's going on? When you interact with me, then what are you experiencing from me? So I, I'm thinking about your needs first before my needs. And I need to know like, hey, help me, help me know how you're experiencing me. Man, you experience me like a jerk? Are you experiencing me like I'm angry? Are you experiencing me like I'm aloof? Am I, you know, am I making you feel condescended, you know, down? Am I, am I, am I being self-right? Like, like that's a question of humility, and I would put before you, especially in a season like we are right now where there is all kinds of tensions going on, all kinds of them. And if you are leaving conversations where someone that you are talking to and that individual feels condemned by you, then I would say you're not speaking in humility, you're actually speaking in pride. And the only way that you'd be able to find that they experience condemnation from you is when you have the courage to go and say, hey man, how'd you experience me there? I feel like that conversation went really weird. Choose to act humbly partly because it's often the best course of action and partly because new patterns of behavior can influence deeper patterns of thought. So my desire for me and my desire for my family and my desire for our church family is that we would be a body that cultivates this virtue of humility because we desire 
that our neighbors know Jesus. And this is one of the ways that God wants to use our character to influence those who are far from God. And so may we be a people who owns the reality that we're prideful people and we need Jesus. And maybe even today or this week, may we act humbly by the empowerment that God gives us through his spirit. Let's pray. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.